Welcome to Enlightenment Rocks. We're your hosts, Kate Rudy and Stephanie O'Rourke. In this podcast, we explore the past, present, and future of Scotland's landscape, and especially the famous rock formations at Glen Tilt in central Scotland. Through interviews with artists, historians, and scientists, we chart a path through the unique topography of Scotland from the 18th century to the present day and into our climate's future. We heard from John Bonehill in the last episode about how artistic representations of landscape were connected to and made possible because of an English surveying project in Scotland in the middle of the 18th century. To learn more about how artists and scientists were exploring that landscape, I'm joined now by Dr. Alison Siskavich, who is a historian of science as well as a practicing artist. And she has some interesting things to say about how artistic categories shaped scientific study of the Scottish landscape in the 18th century and the role that plays in her own work as an artist today. Alison, would you begin by briefly introducing yourself? My name is Alison Siskavich. I'm an artist and a historian of science. I do quite a bit of research on um, history of landscape and the ways that art and science are intertwined in the 18th century in particular. How did what was specific to the Scottish landscape impact how geological knowledge was being created? It's a very interesting period because a lot of what would qualify as geology is still up for debate. You know, it's a group of people that are trying to figure out what the science is. What's the main question for uh, geology? And there's different camps, you know, people who are interested more on the mineralogy, the the chemical end of studying uh, rock formations. And then there are individuals who were more interested in understanding the order of, you know, stratification, the order of how rocks or strata are layered on top of each other. And what's interesting, I find, is that the divide of these individuals tends to be, you know, north-south. So the geologists who are very interested, dedicated to understanding these mineralogical chemical causes for rock formations tend to be individuals who study sort of the earlier, more primitive formations. So in Scotland, for instance, Whereas individuals who are more dedicated to the study of stratification and understanding and mapping out the different layers of rock and their order, so creating a succession or timeline in that sense, um, those individuals tend to study formations in England, where of course the stratification is their younger formation. So stratification is, I would say, a primary way of understanding that. That wouldn't to say that there isn't a mix, but that tends to be sort of the divide of geological schools. If I'm understanding you correctly, the different rock formations available in the south versus the north of Britain were definitely impacting what geologists thought. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like for scientists and artists who were exploring Scotland in the 18th century in in practical terms? 
I think it was a pretty wild place, but if you were a traveler, you would go equipped with letters of introduction. So you would travel to um, the house of a gentleman, present him with a letter of introduction, and then basically that person would function as the gateway for you to other parts of the area. You know, if you're a stranger traveling on your own, then potentially, yes, it was dangerous. I'm not so sure about Scotland, but certainly uh, in Wales, there was a neighborhood watch, if you would, for strangers coming through the village. And being an artist, you could also get confused with someone who was doing reconnaissance work. As in, artists were at risk of being mistaken as spies? How is that possible? Well, the skill set for surveying, landscape surveying, accurately recording land formations, I mean, a shared skill set between a landscape painter and someone who might do surveying for the military. Certainly in Canadian art history, the earliest landscape drawings of the eastern seaboard are military surveys. And that tradition does continue into painting, where often painters, in the more traditional fine art sense, you know, started off in surveying in the military. When people were studying the Scottish landscapes in the 1700s, were they influenced by artistic concepts about beauty and about aesthetic experience? We tend to think of beauty and, say, the study of geology as being very distinct from one another. Um, I would say that, yes, the role of aesthetic sensibility, certainly whether you be a natural historian or philosopher or even just sort of an amateur interested in science, or even if you're just a, a traveler, I think those cultural nuances do play a significant part in shaping how you might respond to the landscape, how you talk about the landscape. I mean, one good example, which I think really, in many ways, sets the tone for a very specific site, would be Joseph Banks and his first description of the island of Staffa and Fingal's Cave. And there's been, you know, quite a bit of work looking at Banks's description. It's quite sublime in the first instance. So his reaction, his initial reaction, definitely falls within this awe of this beautiful natural rock formations, the basalt columns, and the regularity makes it appear as if potentially it's human-made, but of course it's a natural formation. So that initial awe certainly falls within the sublime, and he makes some direct comparisons with the salt formations, those columns, with human-made architectures. So the Greeks at that time considered the, the pinnacle of Western architecture design. But as soon as the discussion shifts to an actual description of the island, I mean, it's quite a sudden break in the tone that's used. There's quite a bit of the imagination that sort of works into this initial description, you know, diary entries of Banks there's this aspect of anticipation as well. So he's reading Homer as he's sailing up to Scotland. He's reading, at that time, the Oceanic Cycles that were being published. 
and he's imagining these ancient stories, projecting that onto the landscape that he's seeing as he's sailing up. So certainly that kind of cultural imagination is part of that first reaction. But as I said, there's a kind of a clean break in the description from Banks's emotion to then going to describe Staffa with the measurements and going around the island very carefully, describing the different caves. And I would say that the way that description operates, as I said before, falls within a more picturesque mode of visualizing or thinking about nature. Also, what's interesting is that he had two natural history illustrators with him um, on the journey up because he was passing Staffa on his way to Iceland. Can you tell us what you mean by these terms, the picturesque and the sublime? How are they relevant here? Sure. The sublime, traditionally, it's more akin, I would say, to poetry or literature, but there's a specific look to it when it's represented visually. The sublime would be where visually or mentally there is a vastness to what is presented in front of you that somehow goes beyond the reach of your mind or your vision. For instance, John McCullough, when he was surveying on Sky, has these moments in his description where he's watching the weather come in from the Atlantic. And it's this moment of a blindness, if you would, a visual blindness, where you can't really see where you're going and you're extremely wet and there's this feeling of a threat in some way, but often, you know, it clears dramatically and then there's this relief from the tension that this feeling creates. So, you know, sublime and the terror kind of fit well together, but also people describe Staffa in, you know, sublime terms as well, but it's just the vastness of, I think, the repetition of the regularity of the columns are something that in some way are beyond comprehension. So they really feel like they stretch your mind, I suppose. Picturesque is, in some ways, it's about creating these views that are really well contained. It's also a, like the sublime, you know, in terms of the visuals, it is about a play of light where the sublime is about obscuring parts of, you know, a view or of your vision the picturesque almost highlights your ability to see. It's about shadow and light and also breaking down the picture into these much smaller elements that you could possibly reassemble. With the sublime, it's kind of the opposite. It's sort of this very smooth, ongoing surface that's continuous, where the picturesque, it's much more smaller, more intimate. What was it about Staffa, the Scottish island in the Inner Hebrides, that was appealing to 18th century artists and scientists? Well, I think the Giant's Causeway in Northern Ireland was kind of a well-known, famous site for travellers to visit. It was a very curious rock formation. It had been an ancient lava lake that cooled very, very slowly, and the lava then shrank into these hexagonal columns, which they just look quite remarkable. And Staffa is actually at sort of the far end of this massive lava lake. 
And it had been known by locals, of course, but um, sort of outside of community, it was not really well known. So Banks is one of the first sort of outsiders, if you would, to visit this site. And it was brought to his attention by a local landlord who piqued Banks's interest and then took him out there the next day with a number from his crew. And it's a very small island, but it's made entirely out of these lava, the basalt columns, with basically a top of, I think you call it tuffa. Can you tell us about how your historical understanding of the landscape comes out in your work as a practicing artist? Yeah, I would say that my work touches on quite strongly with landscape, or at least makes reference to it in some way, and natural history as well, or cultures of natural history. It might only be in like a feeling. It might not be necessarily representative of landscape. But I have a series of these drawings uh, that I had produced. They're about four and a half feet tall and maybe two feet wide. But I was very interested at that time in textiles and I produced a drawing of knitting stitches. But going through that drawing process, it was very meditative, quite repetitive, doing these small little, basically they look like little hearts. They began to kind of take on this very organic feeling and cellular as well. And at that time, I was also quite interested in animal evolution, animal history. And the history of the horse um, was quite fascinating for me. It was one of my favorite displays going into my local museum, where they had a a series of, of horse hooves, if you would, or the foot showing the evolution of that. And I decided on each of these panels, I would have a different stage of the horse foot through evolution. And the combination, that sort of cellular feeling, you know, matched very nicely with this idea of a bone or of a skeleton. But also the outline of the foot took on, because of its size, this feeling of landscape. One of the topics we are exploring in this podcast is the collaborations between artists and scientists in the 18th century, and especially draftsmen who were making illustrations of the Scottish landscape while accompanying more technical projects like the building of roads or making of maps. You recently travelled through Scotland. Is this something that you also do while encountering the landscape? Sometimes. But I find it's most useful, you know, if I go there with the objective of collecting, if you would, you know, like a research trip. I find those to be the most productive. I still certainly keep my eye out and think about, you know, the views that I see and sort of bank that mentally. I'll likely return to those sorts of feelings or views or patterns that I ended up seeing at a later point. I see. So it's kind of like populating a a reservoir of imagery and and experiences which you can draw upon later. I'm reminded of the famous metaphors that were used in the 18th century to describe rock formations as the archives of nature. Do you see a connection there? I do find the the fieldwork very inspiring when I read about the journeys that these people took in the field. You know, it's exciting to read about. They are really adventures in many ways. I mean, it's hard work being in the field, 
but it's enjoyable at the same time. Thank you so much, Alison, for speaking with me and sharing both your historical and your artistic work. For listeners who are interested to see some of Alison's art and also learn about the scholarly work she has done on 18th century natural history, I've included a link to her website in the show notes. This podcast was made possible by the Knowledge Exchange and Impact Fund at the University of St. Andrews. The hosts are Kate Rudy and Stephanie O'Rourke. This series was mostly recorded online because of the pandemic, with some live recording by John Michael Kennedy. Sound production is by Eggbox Audio. The editor was Zoe Irvin, and the assistant editor, Molly Fredrickson. Music composed, played, and recorded by Elizabeth Flett, with thanks to Colin McAndrew, Barry Stewart, Al McGowan, and the Royal Society of Edinburgh.